Hallelujah. Shout close. I just begin to bless the name of the Lord. Bless his holy name. Lift up his name in heaven and on earth. There is none like unto him. The Bible says he dwells in an unapproachable light. Heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. Just bless his holy name. Thank him for your life. Thank him for your existence. Thank him for the fact that by his mercies you have not been consumed. Just lift up his name on high. Lift up his name on high. Exalt his holy name. Bless his holy name. Bless his holy name. He is the Alpha and he is the Omega. He is the beginning. He is the end. There is none like unto him in heaven and on earth. He reigns supreme over all. Just exalt his holy name. Bless his holy name. Bless his holy name. Luke 18, 1. Luke 18, 1. This is Jesus speaking again. He said, and he told them a parable to the effect that, oh, let me have King James, King James, King James. And he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men always ought always to pray and not faint. Men always ought to pray. That means prayer is something you must do always, continually. Let me have Luke chapter 11, verse 2. This was when the disciples went to see Jesus and he asked them, or, or they asked him to teach them to pray. He said, and he said unto them, when ye pray, somebody say, when ye pray. Not if ye pray. So it's not optional. When ye pray, say, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, that will be done as in heaven, so in earth. When ye pray, that means it is not an option. It's not an issue of if you pray. That means you are expected to pray. Amen. When I'm talking about fasting too, I'll read the scripture that says, when ye fast. Yes. So it's not just a prayer. When ye fast, not if ye fast. That means you are expected to fast. You are expected to pray. So with these scriptures alone, plus what I quoted from the Apostle Paul from 1 Thessalonians 5.17, which says, pray without season. It is telling us clearly that God expects us to be people of prayer. His house is expected to be a house of prayer. Hallelujah. Prayer is not optional in the life of a believer. And we'll come to why prayer is so, is so important. Now, somebody will ask, we all know that God is sovereign. I don't mean suffering, that's in S-U-F-F-E-R-I-N-G. I mean sovereign, sovereign. God cannot suffer, amen. God is sovereign. Meaning, he will do what he wants to do. He's not really influenced by anything. So a lot of people ask themselves, if God is sovereign, then why do we need to pray? At the end of the day, he will do what he wants to do anyway. How many of you have asked yourself that question before? Me, I've asked myself that question before. God is sovereign. He is all powerful. He decides what to do and all of that. So why does prayer come in? You know, some people also have this belief that if your faith says yes, God will not say no. Once your faith says this is what I want, God will not say no. How many of you have heard things like that too before? All right. 
This morning, I'll try to put the whole issue of faith and the sovereignty of God into perspective for you to understand the relationship. Amen. Before God will do anything for us, his power must move. It is the power of God that does things in our lives. And the power of God is so dynamic. The power of God can do anything. God can be anything. One of my favorite statements is that if you ask me what my name is, because I can be only one person, I'll tell you I am Leslie Kwakupo. But somebody asked God, what is your name? And he gave him a blank check. In other words, put in what you want. He said, I am. Hallelujah. I am. So I can be anything. When you are in need, I become Jehovah Jireh. When you need direction, I become Jehovah Rohi, the Lord your shepherd. When you are in war, I become Jehovah Nisi, Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. He is so dynamic, he can do anything. He can be anything. Hallelujah. So I like to liken the power of God which does things in our lives to electricity that is generated by Akosombo Dam. So Akosombo Dam is generating megawatts of electricity, a lot of power. And this power, just like the power of God, can do a lot of things. That power is powering the fan. That is making sure I don't sweat too much. It's the same one powering the organ giving us nice music in the background. It's the same one causing the light to shine. The same power is doing a lot of things. Most of you, or I believe all of you, have ironed your clothes this morning. And it's the same power, the same electricity that produces the heat. That means it's dynamic. It can do so many things. And it's coming from Akosombo Dam. Before you can access that power, you need to plug into it. Hallelujah. Even though that power can do anything, you need to plug into the power. You must have a device that has the ability to plug into the power in order for you to get the effect of that power. And this plug that we use to access the power of God or to get or to tap into that power of God that can do anything is prayer and faith. Hallelujah. So it's like the plug that we use to access the power. The power is there. It can do things. But you need to plug into it for you to tap into its ability. And that is where faith and prayer comes in. Now, Akosombo Dam is there. It's producing power. Your plug is there. It can plug into it to receive what the power can produce. But then, there is also ECG. Somebody say ECG. ECG is there to regulate the use of that power. So, if ECG realizes that there are a lot of fluctuations in Kolebu, then Dumso will come over Kolebu. So, even though Akosombo is still working, you will plug in and the power will not flow. Hallelujah. So the ECG in this case is what we call the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God regulates the power of our faith. Hallelujah. Our faith is so powerful. Our faith is so strong. There are so many things our faith can do. In fact, our faith, 
Something that can move mountains is something that must be taken seriously. It must carry a lot of potency and a lot of power. And God doesn't believe in unregulated power anymore because he has learned his lessons from the past. Now I'll regulate the power. Make sure it moves when it has to move. So ECG is like the sovereignty of God that oversees and decides that at this moment, the power is going to be made available and at this moment, I'm going to tune down on it a little bit. Do you get the imagery I'm trying to, I'm trying to create? Yes. So that is the relationship between prayer, faith, and the sovereignty of God. Because our faith is so powerful, if God leaves it unregulated, trust me, the church is going to be one of the most confused places on earth. Because if your faith is unregulated and everything that you have faith for, you receive it. If there's a lady in this church and there are three gentlemen who have faith for her, they've gone to the park, done all their whatever, prayer, done all their declarations, done all the shattering, and they're putting on of perfume to go and propose. Three men, all of them have faith for her. There has to be something that regulates who gets it. Otherwise, there's going to be a lot of confusion. Because the one lady cannot marry three different people. Are you getting the picture I'm trying to paint? That is where the sovereignty of God comes in. That is like the ECG. It decides that no. Because of this reason, I'm not going to let the power flow in this direction. It will go in this direction rather. Hallelujah. So then it comes back to the issue of the sovereignty. You see, the relationship between the prayer and the sovereignty is a very interesting one. And you realize it very soon as I go on in the, in the, in the teaching. So the issue of sovereignty comes in and then we ask ourselves, okay, so the sovereignty of God is there. Then why should I even pray? Because at the end of the day, it's subject to the sovereignty of God. It's more complex than that. You see, God is as sovereign as his word. Everybody say, God is as sovereign as his word. Say it again. God is as sovereign as his word. Now the Bible says that God has exalted his word above his own name. God has exalted his word above his own name. That means when God speaks and it becomes law, he himself is under the power of that law. Hallelujah. So when God speaks, it becomes law. And that law is not only binding unto men, but is binding unto he himself. Because he says he has exalted his word above his own name. His name is his essence, who he is. So he has exalted his word above his own name. So he himself is under his word and is under what he has spoken. Hallelujah. So the issue of sovereignty is not that simple. The sovereignty of God is subject to what he himself has spoken. And I want to take you through a certain scripture and you understand why God needs man in order to accomplish the things he wants to accomplish on earth. Somebody has to ah, but God is he's all powerful. He can do whatever he wants to do. Why does he need man to accomplish anything? If you read Ezekiel 22, 29 to 30, Ezekiel 22, 29 to 30. Ezekiel 22, 
Ezekiel 22, 29 to 30. It said, the people of the land have practiced extortion. Hey, ESV again. <laughs> Let me have KJV. The people of the land have used oppression and exercised robbery and have vexed the poor and needy. Yea, they have oppressed the stranger wrongfully. Next. So what does God want to do? And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in a gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. This scripture tells us that in God's heart, he didn't want to destroy the land, but he needed somebody to stand in the gap. So the question is, ah, if you don't want to destroy the land, then don't destroy it. Why do you need a human being? Why does God need a human being to do things on earth? From creation to revelation, show me anything God did that didn't involve man, either directly or indirectly. Everything God did, he either did it through a man or he did it as a response to a petition man made to invite him into the situation. So the issue of the sovereignty of God is not that simple. Let's read Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. That is where the key is. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. Genesis 1 26. This is a scripture we've read so many times. But today... You have a different understanding of it. Genesis 1 26. And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. I'll take it again. And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them. Somebody say, Let them. Say, Let them. Those two words seem like two insignificant words, but it changes the meaning of the whole thing. Let them means God excluded himself from what he was saying. If he wanted to include himself, he would have said, let us. Because a few sentences or a few words earlier, he has said, let us make man. That one, he was included. So it's not like God doesn't know how to say let us. When he wants to say let us, he's able to say let us. But in this case, he said, let them. Somebody say, let them. That means in the dominion that he was talking about, he voluntarily took himself out and gave it entirely unto man. Are you getting the point I'm making? So when it comes to the dominion there, the, the, the Hebrew word is rada, which means to subjugate. That means to oversee. That means to administer. That means control of affairs on earth. And the legal right to operate here on earth, God willingly handed it over to man. Hallelujah. If he wanted to include himself, he would have said, let us. And once God spoke this word, it became law. And he himself, being under the power of his word, was subject to this word. Hallelujah. What this statement means is that anything that must be accomplished on earth legally must have the involvement of a human being. A human being is a body, a human being is body and spirit, right? That means the legal authority on this earth to do things and to operate 
was given to a spirit that has a body. A human being is a spirit and has a body. God doesn't have a body. That is why any spirit that is disembodied here on earth becomes illegal. Any spirit that operates without a body is illegal. That is why demons even look to enter people or to influence people for them to accomplish the things that they want to accomplish. Because the dominion and the right of authority to operate here on earth was given to a spirit with a body called man. Hallelujah. And it's the same reason why when your body dies, you become illegal, so your spirit must leave. Because you can't operate legally here on earth with just a spirit. You must have a body. So the moment your body dies from sickness, from whatever, your spirit has to leave this earth because suddenly your spirit man becomes illegal here on earth. So God operating alone as a spirit here on earth is not legal according to what he has said. He said, let them. He didn't say let us. Are you getting the point I'm trying to build up? That is why God needs man in everything that he will do. God needs man in everything that you do. Later, Satan came and spoiled this whole thing. Cause Eve to sin. Eve caused Adam to sin. And God came onto the scene. There were four people involved in this transgression. Adam, Eve, the serpent, and Satan. The serpent and Satan are different. Because Satan possessed the serpent and used them. Used them. So four individuals were involved in this matter. When he came... He dealt with three of them there and there, but he postponed the judgment of the fourth one and added a promise to it. He dealt with Adam, gave him a curse. You sweat before you eat, blah, blah, blah. Came to Eve, in sorrow you shall conceive your children, blah, 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 blah. Came to the serpent. The serpent used to have hands, used to have limbs. But he cursed the serpent and he said, on your belly shall you go and you shall eat dust for the rest of your life. That was a case. He dealt with the three of them. But when it got to Satan, he said, as for you, I'm going to give you a promise. Because if I deal with you right now, because of the nature of the, of the transgression and everything, it is going to be illegal. So he gave him a promise, which is found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He told him that the offspring or the descendant of the woman shall come. You will bruise his heels, but he will crush your head. Paraphrasing what God was saying, he basically was giving Satan a threat and a promise that this beautiful thing that I have planned for man, you have come and you have come to mess it up. But I'm going to restore what I had planned in the beginning and you use a woman to destroy the plan. So I myself am going to come back onto this earth in a legal way. I am going to enter the womb of the woman I'm going to be born legally into this earth so I can have the right to operate freely and you will bruise my heel because you will crucify me, you will cause, uh, what do you call it, people to spit on me and me to be lashed and all of those things. But I promise you that at the end of the day, I am going to crush you. That is what Genesis 3.15 means. God was giving Satan, but you see, Satan has always been dumb. He will always continue to be dumb. He never realized the threat that God was actually talking about himself. That he was going to return to the earth legally with a body, with a spirit,
to come to deal with what he had done and to reverse it. Because from the word he spoke in Genesis 1.26, he needs a body to operate legally here on earth. So God had to humble himself and bundle himself into the womb of a woman, stay there quietly for nine months and be born. When the Bible says, and the word became flesh, the word didn't become flesh in heaven. The word became flesh in the womb of a woman. So what it means is that Eve didn't need a sperm to conceive. She just needed to accept and receive a word. And that word was released unto her when the angel came to visit her. He said, blessed are you amongst all women, blah, blah, blah. You shall conceive a child and blah, blah, blah. And you will give birth to this and he shall deliver his people. After he spoke all of that word, she received it and said, be it unto me according to thy word. I believe that was the time uh, Mary's UPT became positive. He didn't need a sperm. It's just a word. So the word entered Mary and the word started gathering flesh. Nine months, in the fullness of time, the flesh was downloaded, waited and prepared himself 30 years, and he emerged. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. Blah, blah, blah. Ministry started. He managed to establish the doctrine of the kingdom here on earth, and it was time for him to do the most important thing, which was to die. So he died, he went into hell, he defeated Satan and his principalities, preached to the spirits that was in hell, as I showed you the other time, liberated all of them. He came back to life and now had to ascend. So the question is now, the man who has come to do the legal work is ascending, but the work has to continue. So I'm sure when Jesus ascended, one of the angels asked him, ah, but now that you've come, how can the work continue? He said, oh, the Holy Spirit will continue. Remind me, ah, but that will be illegal. He's just a spirit. How can he operate alone? And I'm sure Jesus told him that I've made arrangements on earth. I have left a body. And this body is not just a pair of eyes or one nose or two legs or two hands. It is millions and billions and trillions of people. Millions and billions of heads and hands and hearts. And that is what we call the body of Christ. What I'm trying to tell you is that the Holy Spirit cannot operate effectively on earth without the body of Christ. It will be legal. It will be so easy for God to just operate the Spirit of God. Evangelism is the Holy Spirit that will do it. Can you imagine the Holy Spirit evangelizing to you? Can you say you not accept? They say there's a crusade and God himself is coming to preach. Two billion people, will, he'll just blow on them. <laughs> surrender like it will be easy but it's illegal according to the word that they are spoken that dominion and that ability and that legal right to operate has been given unto man you see for things to be accomplished here on earth there has to be a collaborating between power and authority everybody say power and say authority none of them can operate legally alone god is the source of the power power means ability so the ability to do the things is with God. But man has the authority from Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. Power is ability. Authority is like the license. So you might have the ability to drive, but if you don't have a license and you drive, it is illegal. So God has the power. A man has the authority. 
But the power alone will be illegal. That is why God doesn't operate in isolation. He needs man's authority to add to his power and then things become legal. Hallelujah. So how is this related to prayer? Somebody defined prayer as man giving God a license or an invitation to come and intervene in the situations of the earth. That is prayer. So man is literally giving God permission to come down and intervene or, or to affect situations here on earth. Because God cannot do it alone. He has given the dominion to us. He has given that legality to us. So he needs us in order to accomplish the things that he wants to accomplish here on earth. So when you pray, literally what you are, they are telling God is that God... We are giving you permission to come down and influence this situation. That is why certain situations will not change if you don't lift up your voice and pray. Even though God may have the desire to do that thing, you need to plug into that power with prayer and with faith in order to give him the license to come and intervene. Are you getting the picture I'm trying to paint? So then Nyami Baye, Nyami Baye, Nyami has the power, but the authority is yours. And it is your responsibility to stand in the gap and cause things to change. God will not do it alone. He needs to collaborate with you for the whole thing to be legal. Amen. The collaboration between power and authority is essential. It cannot be negotiated. Why do you think God will come to Moses? The cry of my people has come upon, unto me and I want to come down and deliver them. Okay, then why do you come to me? Because I need you. I don't want to operate illegally. What the angel went to see Mary about and to speak to her and for her to accept, it was God trying to negotiate that, look, I need your womb because I need a body to come onto this earth and operate. Thank God Mary accepted it. If she had rejected it, the angel would have moved to somebody else. Maybe some um, Rita or something. <laughs> You think God couldn't have killed Goliath? He would have just blown air on Goliath and he would have died. But he needed a human being to do it. So for God to accomplish things on earth, he needs man to lift up his voice and say, God, come into this situation. You see, God is a gentleman. The other time I was telling you about the differences between the voice of God and the voice of Satan. I told you that the voice of God leads, but the voice of Satan pushes. God is a gentleman. And he will respect his word. So, Christians are actually the priests. You know, the Bible tells us that we are kings and priests. Let me give you a few scriptures to show that we are kings and priests. Revelation chapter 5, 9 to 10. The priest was the one who used to go before God on behalf of the people. But you see, in the new covenant, the priesthood and the order of the priesthood has changed. The order of the priesthood in the Old Testament was a priesthood after the order of Aaron. It was an Aaronic priesthood. It was a particular bloodline that qualified. The role of the priest was to sort of stand in the gap on behalf of the people. So the priest will go to the tabernacle, enter the Holy of Holies once every year to make atonement for them. But see, if you read Hebrews chapter 7, 
The Bible tells us that Jesus' priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek. So who is Melchizedek? There's no time for me to go through all the scriptures. Melchizedek was a priest that appeared somewhere in the Old Testament. And in actual fact, if you read the attributes of Melchizedek, a lot of theologians believe he was Jesus Christ visiting the earth before his time. Because they said he had no genealogy. He had no mother, he had no father. Which kind of human being has no mother, no father? You have to be divine one way or the other. And they said he was the king of Salem. Salem means peace. King of peace. And Jesus who is the prince of peace. So a lot of his attributes were like that of Jesus. And he was a priest. He was the one that Abraham paid a tithe to. And his generations were blessed because of the tithe that he paid unto him. So it's believed this Melchizedek was actually Jesus Christ visiting the earth before his time. And in Hebrews, we are told that Jesus' priesthood will be after the order of Melchizedek. And here we are being told, Revelation. Revelation chapter 5, 9 to 10. Revelation 5, 9 to 10. We are being told that we are kings and priests. Kings and priests. That means in the new order, we qualify to go into the throne room of God. In the old order, they used to go into God's presence with fear. But we are told now to come into the throne room of God with what? Boldness. That's the difference between the old order and the new order. Are we having some technical hitches? But basically what that scripture tells us is that we are kings and we are priests. All right. It said, and they sang a new song saying, thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou was slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation next and has made us unto our god what kings and priests and we shall reign on earth hallelujah tell somebody you are a priest tell somebody else you are a priest so from today your idea of a priest shouldn't be somebody who is wearing a long gown and a belt and probably a mitre you are a priest of god hallelujah he said, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a peculiar people. The fact that you have a priesthood means you qualify to go before God, to speak to him on your own behalf and on behalf of the people. Amen. In the old order, they could go before God once a year. But in the new order, you can go as many times as you want. Amen. You can go to God's throne room, commune with him, stand in the gap for your family, stand in the gap for your school, stand in the gap for your nation. Because that mantle of priesthood has been placed upon you. Hallelujah. And you see, there were significant things that happened in the Bible to show that the order of the priesthood was changing. Close to the time Jesus Christ was crucified. Because it was his crucifixion that actually brought the new order of priesthood with its privileges that came with it. Now, the first thing that happened was when Jesus Christ found himself in front of Caiaphas. Caiaphas, the high priest of the day. Matthew 26, verse 65. Matthew 26, verse 65. You know, the Bible moves in symbols and tokens. So, there are a lot of things that have certain meanings. They have certain hidden meanings. Certain actions have certain hidden meanings. So he had to stand in front of Caiaphas. And what did Caiaphas do? When Jesus declared himself as the son of God, what did Caiaphas do? He said, then the high priest rent his clothes. 
saying he had spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. This was like a handing over ceremony. Hallelujah. It was a handing over ceremony. He rent his clothes. There are certain things if you did as a high priest, you are stripped of your position as a high priest. Read Leviticus chapter 21 verse 10 and you understand the meaning of what Caiaphas did. He thought he was just doing something but it was actually a handing over ceremony. Changing the order of the priesthood from the order of Aaron to the order of Melchizedek. Leviticus 21 verse 10. And he that is a high priest among his brethren, upon whose head the anointing oil was poured, and that is consecrated to put on the garments, shall not uncover his head, nor what? Rend his clothes. When you rend your clothes, it's more like you are handing over the mantle. So Jesus, the new high priest that is coming in, was standing in front of the incumbent. He asked him, who are you? He said, I am the son of God. And he said, you have blasphemed. So he took off his clothes. More or less, I have handed over to you. Take over. The God has changed. The order has changed. We are now moving from the era of the Aaronic priesthood into the Jesus priesthood. Hallelujah. Which you and I belong to. Amen. So once the order of the priesthood had changed, the priest used to operate in the tabernacle and in the temple. So the temple also had to change. I told you today, I'm laying the basics. It is next week that we'll go into the practicality. If you get today's own, you get the rest of the, of the sermons. The temple or the tabernacle, in fact, they started with the tabernacle and then they moved into the temple. The tabernacle had three sessions. It had three, three sessions. The outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies. And it, it was in the Holy of Holies that the presence of God, in the form of the Shekinah glory of God, that, that, that is where the Shekinah glory of God was. The entire tabernacle was in actual fact a foreshadow of the work Jesus Christ was coming to do. Now, I'm, I'm coming to the point that the order of the priesthood has changed. So the temple in which the priest also operates had to change. So they operated in the tabernacle. Later, it became the temple. The tabernacle had certain ornaments. I gave certain pictures for projection. The tabernacle, let, let's move to another, another picture. Let's go to the Ark of the Covenant and, and all those things. The tabernacle had certain ornaments. And all of these ornaments were actually speaking about the work Jesus Christ was going to do. The lampstand, the menorah, was actually prophesying of the fact that the Messiah will be there. The, the light of the world. There was the showbread in there, which was prophesying of the fact that the Messiah was going to be the bread of life. The water in the brazen laver was speaking of the fact that the Messiah is going to be the son of God. The Ark of the Covenant itself was the most profound statement about the work and the mission of the Messiah. Now, give me the next picture, which shows the, the, the Ark of the Covenant. Give me the next one. I'll come back to this. Now, the Ark of the Covenant had two components. It had the box itself and the lid, which is called the mercy seat. Somebody say the mercy seat. Now, the arrangement was such that on top of the mercy seat is where the glory of God was. 
the presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God. And inside the box was the broken law that man could not keep. Now, let's go to the previous picture. Because the sacrifice was carried out once every year on the mercy seat, the mercy seat always had blood on it. So now this is the arrangement. The broken law that man could not keep. The blood of the lamb, the Shekinah glory of God. The prophetic statement here is that the only thing that can stand between the wrath of God and the law that man could not keep is the blood of the lamb. Hallelujah. So the arrangement and the ark of the covenant itself was a prophetic word about the work that Jesus Christ was coming to do. Let's go back to the tabernacle. Now, with this in mind, give me John chapter 20 verse 12. This one was a, a foreshadow. But I'll show you in John chapter 20 verse 12 that this mercy seat was recreated. When Jesus Christ was crucified, we all know that he was beaten. He bled. So wherever he lay, there must have been blood there. True or false? He was bleeding from everywhere. So wherever he lay, there must have been blood there. Now, when he resurrected, look at what they saw. Somebody went and peeped into the tomb. And this is what he saw. Mind you, the mercy seat, it has two angels. One on the head and one at the foot. Look at what somebody saw. And he seeth how many angels? Two angels in white sitting one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain and we have all agreed that where the body of Jesus laid there will definitely be blood in there this arrangement was actually a recreation of the mercy seat it was a statement that mercy has located the world that mercy seat was an artificial foreshadow now the real mercy seat has come hallelujah the real mercy seat has come. This one is not golden angels, but proper white angels that were shining. And the blood in the middle was not the blood of some lamb they had caught, but the blood of the lamb of God himself. So the order was changing. We're trying to tell you, look, we have dealt with the foreshadow things for a very long time. We are now entering into the real meat and the real thing. So how did the temple change? First thing that happened... When Jesus Christ died, the curtain in the temple was rent into two. What was the statement there? The mystery surrounding the Holy of Holies has been broken. So now everybody can enter in there. You don't have to be a priest with a white beard and wearing a long cap. And you don't have to enter once a year. But you can enter into that throne room of God and converse with God and speak to God and petition God at any time that you want. So the principles surrounding the temple were also changing but then the entire temple also changed because now the temple moved from a building that has been made with human hands into being the human being himself because he says ye are the what temple of god so now god moved from the temple and now is residing in the spirit of man the principle of the three stations, outer court, holy place, and holy of holies was maintained. But this time round, give me the, 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 this thing. The outer court is the body. The holy place is the soul or the inner court. And the holy of holies is your spirit. 
That is why when you become born again, it is in your spirit that the Holy Spirit dwells. Hallelujah. Just like the Shekinah glory of God on top of the Ark of the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies. So now the temple has also changed. The priesthood has changed. And the temple has also changed from a building into you as a human being. So when you are going into the presence of God, and take this, this, this thing I'm coming to say seriously. The presence of God is not somewhere that you are walking to. The presence of God is inside you. And you need to move from the flesh, move out of the realm of the soul, and encounter God in your spirit. You see, God is omnipresent. What we perceive as now I am feeling the presence of God is when you have moved from the body or the flesh. You've moved out of the soul and you have entered the spirit. That's why people say I'm in the spirit. That is when you feel the presence of God. So it's not like the presence, it is somewhere. It is actually inside you. It's just a matter of making that journey from the flesh through to the soul into the spirit. Then you encounter God. And this is the reason why it is difficult to pray in the initial stages. Because when you start, you start in the flesh. You are in the outer court. Most of the time, you don't enjoy the prayer at the beginning. Oh, it's difficult. And if you are not stubborn, you stop. If you are not stubborn, you stop. Oh, this is it. And you see some mosquito. Oh, it's because you are still in the flesh. You are still in the outer court. But if you persevere, somebody say persevere. You will break out of the realm of the flesh and enter the inner court or the holy place. And that is also not the destination. You have to break out of the inner court and enter the holy of holies. That is when you are communing with God. That is when you begin to enjoy the prayer. Hallelujah. So, this thing that you feel where when you start praying, it's like, Charlie, the thing is not going, it's with everybody. It's not just you. The difference between those who are able to enter that realm and pray three hours, four hours, five hours, seven hours. The longest I've prayed is 16 hours. I'm aiming at doing 24 hours one of these days. When I come here, you can't look at my face. You realize that when you're able to break through the flesh, break through the soul and you enter the spirit, now it becomes difficult to even stop. But the problem is that most of us don't have that patience and that tenacity to break through those two realms and enter. Next week, I'll show you some of the ways to make it easy. Because there are principles. He says, enter my gates with thanksgiving, my courts with pray. A lot of people, when you start praying, you know, immediately, shoom, you zoom into prayer. You will find it difficult. You are breaking protocol. You are breaking protocol. So for you to enjoy prayer, you must break through the flesh, break through the soul, and enter the spirit. That is when you realize that, yeah. I mean, those of you came for the prayer meeting yesterday, beginning, you realize, you realize that it just picks up. It just, even with worship, it's the same. Beginning, it may be slow, it may be something. And as you persist, you persist, you move in. You realize that, yeah, you are entering a realm, and now you are beginning to enjoy. And then they say, let's introduce the preacher. And you are sad. That is the reason. Because now you are broken into the spirit. And you are now communing with God himself. I pray that God will raise our prayer lives to a different level. By the time the month of August is over, you'll be praying at a different level than you have ever prayed in your life. I'll halt here for today. 
next week we are going to continue but we need to do practical somebody say practicals say practicals and as you are saying the practicals you must be standing on your feet because we are going to enter into prayer right now hallelujah Can I have some prayer people to come and back me here? Today we have to make Satan uncomfortable a bit. Where's Alex? Blagoji. Uh, oh, you are doing some technical things. We need to pray. Now, the theme for this prayer session, short as it is, is while men slept. While men slept. We are going to deal with three things. You see, this is a month of greater awakening. We are waking up. We've slept for too long. And when we sleep, there are certain things that happen. And we are going to deal with three of those things. While men slept. The Bible said, while men slept, the enemy came in. And he did what? He planted tears. So it means if you are sleeping spiritually, Satan comes in and he plants things in your life that are not supposed to be there. Look, I also believe in the new creation realities and all of those things. But the Bible also tells me that be sober and be vigilant. For your adversary, the devil walketh about like a roaring lion, seeking him whom he may devour. That means the condition is that you must be sober and you must be vigilant. If you are not sober and you are not vigilant and you are sleeping and you are living your life anyhow, you give Satan, the adversary who is walking about like a lion, free course to operate in your life. You can't be there say, oh, I am born of God, born of the blood. This is making declarations. When you are sober, you are not sober and you are not vigilant. You need to be sober. You need to be vigilant. So while men slept, the enemy came and sowed tears. I believe there are some tears, but to, today we are going to approach them. We are going to take away the tears. It's one of the results of not being sober and vigilant. We're going to remove the tears. And this prayer.